Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all today. Turn to John chapter 10. That's where we will be this morning. We'll get there in a few minutes. But I'd love for you to have that open in front of you as we work through our text this morning. And we are back in this season. We're still in the season of working through the I am sayings of Jesus. And we are putting ourselves in this place where we're letting Jesus reintroduce himself to us. We're letting him speak for himself. Who is he? And as he tells us who he is, we discover something more about who we are. And then Jesus in his kindness connects those two things together. Because every one of Jesus' I am statements is a promise that connects with us right where we live. And I'm going to jump right in the deep end this morning. Sometimes we start with like a funny story. This time last year, I predicted the Super Bowl winner. And I'm one for one, so I'm not going to try to do that again, (laughs) even though it's the Chiefs. But we're just going to jump right in this morning with with some questions that are they're actually pretty serious, somber questions. And but I think that they will help us as we come into this this story. So here's a couple of questions to think about this morning. Have you ever been hurt by someone you looked up to? Have you ever been wounded by someone who was supposed to be an agent of healing? Maybe a parent, a counselor, a pastor, a church leader. Someone who was supposed to bring the healing of Jesus to you instead wounded you. Now, I know, I know those are deep questions, and I think... On some level, they probably resonate with every single one of us, but for some of you, they probably bring up some pretty deep hurt, some pretty significant wounds that you've experienced, some trauma that you maybe are still feeling in your body. The word trauma literally means wound. And author and therapist Resma Menachem describes trauma as a wordless story our body tells itself about what is safe and what is a threat. Rich Velotis in his book, Good, Beautiful, and Kind, defines trauma as a wound and the state of woundedness and the story that arises from living in that state. And I think some of you have had some of us, I include myself, because I, my story has been deeply affected by wounds from those who are supposed to be agents of healing. And our stories and our bodies are affected. Sometimes our bodies respond to memories, and we don't even know why our body is responding that way. That's called trauma, and we feel it deeply. And so I, I just want to invite you to sit in the tension. If you're already thinking of things, if you're already having things come to your memory of your past, to sit in the tension of those for a moment and feel whatever you need to feel. Maybe it's anger or sadness or loneliness. Maybe it's gladness because you haven't experienced those wounds or you've experienced a lot of healing from those wounds. And I want to tell you this morning that Jesus cares deeply about your wounds and that he wants to heal you. 
And that's what this I am statement in John 10 is actually all about. It is an invitation to the wounded heart to receive healing. And before we read John 10, I want to tell you a story that will become, will sound more and more familiar as I tell it. It's a true story, and it begins with a married couple who discover that they're pregnant. And as they dance in joy around their living room, they start to anticipate what this child is going to be, who this child is going to be. And their friends celebrate with them and hug them as they say, we're having a baby. And they, they didn't live in a time and place where gender reveals were a thing, so they had to wait. And so they waited until that baby was born. And as the nurse proclaims, it's a boy, excitement grows in their heart. And they check, you know how you check the, for fingers and toes? Are all the fingers there? All the toes are there. They're checking to see, is the baby healthy? And as far as they can tell, the baby is completely healthy and they're rejoicing that they have this new, precious little boy in their life. About four to six months in, they start to to notice some things they hadn't noticed before, maybe even sooner than that. They start to notice that their little boy's eyes move side to side and wander and he he can't seem to focus. When they put their faces in front of him, he he can't keep his eyes on their face. When they go outside and, and the sunlight is out, his eyes, they don't squint. And slowly they realize their little boy is blind. And they go and see doctors, the doctors can't help and they realize that their little boy is facing a life of blindness. And so fear and even shame begins to rise in their hearts. Fear because they, in that time and place, there were very little opportunities for someone with blindness to live a normal life. And shame because the religious community that they were a part of, many of them believed that blindness was a sign of God's judgment, either on the parents, or the child. And so all the community events that normally they would have been welcome at, now they're potentially excluded. The, the parents that rejoice with them now look at them with skepticism. And the little boy had no hope to ever be a member of this religious community, even though the parents were welcome. They were told the boy would never be welcome. And as the boy begins to grow older, he realizes the only way he can provide for himself is to be on the street and to beg. And one day, this blind man, and by now, if you've read John chapter 9, you're connecting the dots. I've added some fictional details that are pretty good assumptions to give you a sense of what he was feeling and his parents were feeling. But now this blind man is on the roadside begging. He was relegated to be outside the city limits normally. They, the, the blind were not allowed to be in the synagogue. The blind were considered outcasts of society. And so he's begging once again on the street corner and he hears the shuffle of feet And here's a question that he's probably heard many times before. Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? And so he waits for the answer. But here's something really different 
this time? The rabbi answers and says, no one, no one sinned, but through him, the works of God may be displayed. That's why he's blind. And may, maybe he cocks his head a, a minute and thinks, oh, that's, that's different. I've never heard that one before. And he wonders what's next. And he hears the unlikely sound of someone spitting. The rabbi spits in the ground and he mixes his spit with the dirt and he takes the mud and he spreads it on the blind man's eyes and he says, go wash in the community pool, probably reserved for the needy, the pool of Siloam and see what happens. So he goes to the pool and he dips his hands in and he washes the mud from his eyes and suddenly the sun that he had only felt the warmth of, the light begins to pierce through his eyelids. And for the first time, he can see his hands. Maybe the first thing he sees is his reflection in the pool. The first time he's ever seen his face. He can see the blue in the sky, the green in the grass, the yellow in the sand. And he realizes his life is about to change. And there's this amazing little detail in John 9. It says he went home. He went home. Maybe an insignificant detail, but I think an important one because he's probably hoping, I get to be home now. I get to be part of a community now. I get to be accepted and not rejected now. But little did he know, the rabbi who healed him, Jesus, made a grave mistake, at least in the eyes of others. He healed this man on the Sabbath day. And so immediately there's this interrogation of the man and his parents. And instead of rejoicing with him that he's no longer blind, the Pharisees say, who, who did this to you? And there's a division. Some say uh, this, this man couldn't possibly um, be a prophet or a man of God. He healed you on the Sabbath. And others are like, uh, hello, <laughs> he healed somebody. How can he not be from God? And so there's this, this division. So they ask the man and the blind man says, hey, he's a prophet. And so then they pull his parents in and they say, is this your son? <laughs> a spiritual blindness makes you ask really crazy questions, right? Is this your son? Like you've known him for how long? Like th this is, are you sure? Are you sure this is your son? Not somebody who looks like him? And, and the parents in that moment they're so full of fear that they're going to be rejected, excommunicated from the synagogue. They, they can only say, yes, he's our son, but we don't have anything to say about the healing that happened to him. Ask him. And at the very moment, this man needed an advocate in his life and his parents who should have been that, they abandoned him. And so then the Pharisees ask him more questions. And he's, you can tell he's exasperated, exasperated from the text. He's like, uh, I was blind, now I can see, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> like, do you want to be his disciple too? And their response to him is, how dare you try to teach us? And in chapter nine and verse 34, they say to him, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. So here's this man, newly healed, hope to be reinstated in the community, and now he's alone, 
again. His parents have abandoned him in many ways. His religious community has said, you're not welcome. And once again, he's alone. But then Jesus comes. Jesus comes and he finds this man. And, and this, this should make you angry. <laughs> this story should make you angry. It should make you angry when it happens today because it does in different shapes and sizes. People that are supposed to be agents of healing become agents of wounding. But Jesus shows up and Jesus loves to get near the wounded and the outcasts and say, I'm here. I'll be the advocate that no one else has been for you. And Jesus tells this blind man, I'm the Messiah. And the blind man worships him. He's not blind anymore. The, blind man, the one who was blind worships him. And you can almost imagine Jesus putting his arm around the shoulder of the blind man who you can now see, and looking at the Pharisees and saying, what you just did to this man is evil. What you just did to this man shows that you are more blind than he was. And that is the context of John chapter 10. And so look at John chapter 10 and verse 1. John 10 and verse 1, Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he is brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they'll run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. This morning, this will be a kind of a part one of two sermons. Next week, we're going to talk about the Good Shepherd. Kyleo is going to introduce us to that I am statement. But today, we're going to focus in on Jesus as the gate. And I want to look at this under two headings. Number one, a warning. Jesus is giving a warning. That's the context to shepherds. And then an invitation, <coughs> excuse me, to sheep. An invitation to sheep. So first, this warning to shepherds. And verses one to five, I think that's what Jesus is doing. He's, he's giving this metaphor of a sheep pen. And we don't know exactly what they look like, but here, here's a picture of a sheep pen. It might've looked something like this. And it was basically just a, a fenced or gated or, or stoned in area that actually held multiple flocks of sheep. And so uh, there would be someone standing in that gap a, a chief shepherd or a gatekeeper. 
and he himself would act as the gate. And these different shepherds would come and they would come and they would come to get their specific sheep. So they'd call them by name and those sheep would come out. Then another shepherd would come, call their sheep by name, get those sheep out. But all of them that were legitimate shepherds, they all had to go through the gate. If you didn't go through the gate, if you climbed over the wall, the assumption was you're not a shepherd, you're a thief, you're a robber. And so Jesus is contrasting these two things and he's looking at the Pharisees and he's saying, this is the kind of shepherd you should have been for this man, but you weren't, you aren't. And, and I, love, I love that Jesus, again, is advocating for this blind man. He's saying it like it is. Peter Levine, who's written a ton on trauma, says that trauma is not what happens to us, but what we hold inside in the absence of an empathetic witness. And Jesus is the empathetic witness for this man. He sees him, he knows him, he stands and says, this, what has been done, is evil. And in this parable, there's just two kinds of people that get at the sheep. There's those who say, I, I can only get to the sheep if I go through Jesus. That the, the central point to meet the sheep is at the gate. It's at the point of, of Jesus himself. And then there are those who are in it for what they can get from the sheep, the thieves and the robbers. And so Jesus says to the Pharisees, this is you. You're, you're in it for what you can get. And so we're, I wanna talk a little bit this morning about what that looks like. What spiritual, this kind of spiritual abuse that the Pharisees exercise towards this man, what it looks like today. And it's, it's just as rampant in our day in, in church as it was in Jesus' day. And so it's really important that we, that we talk about it. And it's important that we talk about it for, for a few reasons. Let me just give you three reasons it's important that we talk about this today. Number one, it's important to bring healing to those who are spiritually abused. Some of you need to hear for the first time that what you've experienced in churches in your past was really abuse, that you're not crazy. And part of, part of the healing of trauma, one of the first steps in healing trauma is to name it for what it is, is to name the evil that's been committed against you for what it is. Not all failure of leaders is spiritual abuse. I'll talk about that in just a moment, but some of you have experienced legitimate spiritual abuse, and I want you this morning to be able to just name that and call it what it is because I think that will be one of the steps towards actual healing in your lives. But number two, we need this to caution our own leaders, all of them. So yes, we as elders need this. This was a hard sermon to write for me. I'm still processing what I've written. I'm still asking Jesus to inspect my heart. But this is needed for all of us as leaders, whether you're a parent, an MC leader, you lead a DNA group, you're an elder. We need to hear this and we need to be warned by Jesus. Almost every one of us is in some position of spiritual authority and has the potential of abusing those 
that are under our care. And then number three, we need to hear this to encourage a culture that identifies and rejects or heals abusive leadership. Again, it's important to recognize that spiritual abuse is on a spectrum. You can experience moments of failure as a leader, and that doesn't mean you're a narcissistic cult leader. Like there is a spectrum. But what's really important to recognize is that in in a community of people who are recovering sinners, there's always the potential for hurt. And so as as we're looking at spiritual abuse and the signs of it, we want to be able to identify it quickly, repent of it quickly, and address and move towards healing of those that are wounded. That's what's important. So to start, I want to give you a definition of spiritual abuse and then some characteristics of it. I quoted Diane Laneberg in the newsletter, and I'm going to quote her four more times today. I'm just going to own it, that she is one of the best voices on the subject of spiritual abuse. She's spent decades in the trenches in uh, counseling and giving therapy to those who experience abuse, and she tends to just say things the way you want to hear them said. And this is what she says spiritual abuse is. It's using that which is sacred, including God's word, to control, misuse, deceive, or damage a person created in his image. Jesus contrasts the thieves and the robbers, those who are in it for what they can get, no matter what it costs the sheep. He contrasts them with shepherds who know their sheep by name. He's not saying shepherds that have a good memory to translate the metaphor into people. If you have a name, it means you're a person and it implies relationship. And Jesus is saying that shepherds don't treat sheep as objects, as a means to an end. Shepherds don't treat sheep as projects to be fixed. They treat sheep as people persons made in the image of God and precious to the God who made them. So to flesh this out, let me give you five characteristics of abusive leadership. And there's dozens, but I'm going to just give you five. Number one, abusive leaders use the sheep to get something only Jesus can give. They're thieves and robbers, And often the most abusive leaders are those who have wounds that have not been healed by Jesus in themselves. And in an attempt to have those wounds healed, they settle for a counterfeit version of using the sheep. So some who have been abandoned or neglected or unseen by other leaders who are longing for meaning and purpose, they get into leadership and they start to realize that there's a drug associated with leading people, the drug of acceptance, and and they start being satisfied or thinking that will heal their souls when it won't. And if you're trying to be healed... (laughs) Through sheep, you're going to hurt the sheep. You're going to hurt the sheep. Fourth century theologian St. Ambrose said, no one heals himself by wounding another. 
And one of the questions you can ask to test yourself is, if I lose this position of leadership, will I lose my identity and purpose? And if the answer is yes, or maybe, then there's a really good chance you're going to hurt some sheep because you're trying to find from people what only Jesus himself can give you. Number two, abusive leaders lack genuine curiosity and teachableness. And did you notice that as I retold the story of the blind man? These Pharisees were not interested in hearing what the blind man said. They didn't have a genuine curiosity of how can someone be healed and it happened on the Sabbath day. Like they weren't willing to have their categories shattered, especially not by this person who they looked at as inferior to them. The blind man tells them, I, I, I was blind and now I see. What, what more do you need to hear? But instead they hurl insults at him. And at the heart of of a lack of curiosity and teachableness is this spiritual pride that says there can't possibly be another way of thinking about this. Like there, there can't possibly be something we're missing. And I'm certainly not gonna have someone who I view as inferior in academics or spiritual wisdom or experience give me something new that I need to consider. Jesus essentially says, you should have listened to him. He can see better than you can. And those who have experienced wounds and trauma and are experiencing the healing of Jesus, those people especially are people that we need to listen to as leaders. Diane Langberg says, the voices of victims today of those abused and violated and crushed in our Christian circles are in fact the voice of God to his people pointing out the cancer and calling us to fidelity in him alone. Number three, abusive leaders use God's name to preserve systems rather than serve people. The Pharisees were not concerned with this blind man. They weren't happy with him. They didn't want to celebrate with him. They didn't care about his future. All they cared about was preserving their system. They looked at him as an obstacle, as a threat to their religious system. They didn't know what to do with this conundrum. And they looked at him as a threat to their religious system. And that happens today. That happens today when a church or a strategy or a philosophy of ministry or a leadership team fails to serve and protect the sheep. And when, when that system, in fact, becomes a conduit for spiritual abuse or a place where other abuse can be hidden, that is evil. And it is spiritual abuse. And what often happens in a system like that is when it's threatened, spiritually abusive leaders will use the name of God will use their authority and power to cover up sin, to accuse the offender, to play victim when they are the ones who are offending, all so that an organization can be preserved. And when wounded sheep are neglected or worse, told that their wounds are imaginary in order to protect the system or a church's or a leader's reputation, Jesus says that is evil. Now, I, I know the temptation. I read this stuff all the time. 
I see it coming across my timeline frequently. And the temptation is to say, I'm glad that doesn't happen to us. But that's not what Jesus wants us to do today. He wants us to say, Lord, help. Let this not be us. Let us never put the protection of this church's name and the name of our leaders above the protection of the sheep. May we always be willing to say, if people are being spiritually abused in this place, let's just burn someone to come out of the ground. We don't need it because it's lost its purpose to serve and love and protect the sheep. The testimony, I hear this all the time, like we're gonna hide this abuse or handle it in house because we wanna preserve the testimony of the church. The testimony of the church should never be that we are experts at showing a facade of health when there's cancer growing on the inside. That is not the testimony we want as a church. The testimony we want as a church is that we will at all costs When we see abuse, address it and address those who have been wounded by it. Number four, abusive leaders equate allegiance to them with allegiance to God. You guys doing okay? I know it's heavy. It's heavy stuff. We're going to get to good news, I promise. But this is really important. Abusive leaders equate allegiance to them with allegiance to God. Look, look down at your Bibles at chapter 9 and verse 24. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind and said, Give glory to God by telling the truth. They said, and we know this man is a sinner. In other words, we're going to tell you the truth that you need to say that will give glory to God. If you say anything other than this, you are denying the truth. You are not giving glory to God. If you don't pledge allegiance to the way we're seeing this, then you have lost your relationship, your commitment to God. Man, this is, this is such a danger in, in our church, in any church. It's a danger for us as elders as MC leaders, let, let us be so careful that we never in the slightest imply that the way we organize our church, that our philosophy of ministry, that even our interpretation of the Bible and things that are not essentials, let us never imply that disagreement with us is disagreement with God himself. If, if, you, if you hear us imply, hey, we've got it together and these other churches are missing out. If you hear us say to serve God means to serve in this church, will you please rebuke us? And if we don't listen to you, leave? Because that's spiritual abuse. To equate allegiance to any church or any person with allegiance to God is abuse and it is wrong. Closely connected and finally, spiritual abusive leaders act as gatekeepers to a relationship with God. And this is perhaps the one that's the most significant in the context. Jesus sees this blind man who's been shut out of the synagogue. In other words, you can't have a relationship with God because of what you think. And Jesus says, no, you are not the door. I am. You are not the one that gets to set the parameters for a relationship with God. I am. 
And I've been in spiritually abusive systems and churches where I've been told and others have been told, if you don't think the way we think, if you don't act the way we act, if you don't have this experience, like we've had this experience, then your relationship with God is either minimal or non-existent. It's, it's not up to par with these other people who are keeping the rules, who are doing all the right things. And I want to tell you that is wrong. That is not okay. That is spiritually abusive. And we can call it that. I know this is heavy stuff. We're getting to good news in a minute, but I want to just pause for a minute. If you're, if you're feeling some of these wounds from your past, from your story, just to take a minute and say, Jesus, please heal me. <laughs> Jesus, please heal me. If, if you're thinking about these in ways you've led and you're seeing, I think I've, I see a seed of that in the way I lead. I'm seeing, I'm seeing like little sprouts of this abusiveness in the way I lead. This is the moment to say, Jesus, come and uproot those, please. Come and rescue me, please. And here's the good news. Jesus doesn't just give a warning. He gives an invitation to the sheep. And Jesus says, I am the gate. And I think he's offering at least two things. He's first of all offering hope for leaders who embrace their sheepness and holistic rescue for every wounded soul. It it can be a little confusing to read this chapter and see how Jesus mixes metaphors. He didn't care about the, the rules of language sometimes. He mixed metaphors together. And I think one of the reasons Jesus mixes the metaphors of gate and shepherd together is he's trying to communicate to these spiritual leaders, there is a sliver of hope for you that if you will come to the gate like all the other sheep have to, if you will come that way and humble yourself, if you will be like sheep first before you try to be shepherds, then there's hope. And that is the offer that I think Jesus is giving to us to, as, as leaders to continually come and say, I don't have anything of myself to offer I can't give you what you need and you can't give me what I need, but I know someone who can and his name is Jesus. I know someone who can heal my wounds and your wounds and he's my hope and he's your hope and he's the only gate and his name is Jesus. Again, I give you the wise words of Diane Langberg. This is longer, but really good. Have, have you been called, she says, to shepherd the lambs of God in some fashion? You may shepherd as a pastor, a teacher, a counselor, or a parent. Do not forget that long before God called you to be a shepherd, he called you first and foremost to be his lamb. You are a lamb who must stay very close to the great shepherd. That is the best and wisest way to lead other lambs. They will follow you there. Your value as a shepherd depends on your life as a lamb, a weak, foolish lamb, utterly dependent on the shepherd. How will you know anything about shepherding if you do not stay close to the great shepherd? When the work of shepherding leads us to pride and judgment and superiority or deception, we have forgotten that we are a lamb. 
A shepherd who is not first a lamb is a dangerous shepherd and has ceased to follow the good shepherd. Our primary identity in life, if we are to be of eternal value to the Father, is not that of a shepherd, but that of a lamb. And we can talk about lots of strategies, and we do as, a, as an elder team. How do we have an environment that is not abusive to the sheep? And we can talk about those strategies and implement those, and those are all good and wonderful, but it starts here. Lord, we're sheep, and we need you as our shepherd. You're our only hope. And if we can posture ourselves as leaders, parents, counselors, teachers, as sheep, then we can receive this second invitation, this holistic rescue for every wounded soul. Look down at chapter 10 and verse 9. Jesus says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. This is the New Testament word sozo. It's a very broad word. It means all kinds of saving. It is sometimes translated healed, rescued, delivered, made safe, made well, redeemed. And it's used to talk about both physical and spiritual healing and everything in between. And what what Jesus is saying is I'm the holistic door to all kinds of saving. I can heal you, I can rescue you, I can redeem you, I can save you. And we've talked about this before, but let me remind you, we, we have this holistic need for saving because we have holistic brokenness. Our brokenness is made up of sin, Satan, trouble, and trauma. So yes, when Jesus says, I am the gate, he does mean I am the only one who can rescue you from your sin. I am the only one who can forgive you who can adopt you into God's family. I'm the only one who can save you from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin and from the presence of sin. Jesus is the only gate to that kind of rescue. And he's the only one that can save us from the power of Satan. He's the, I tell my kids all the time, there's only one person stronger than the devil. It's not dad, it's Jesus. And Jesus is the only one that can rescue us from the power of Satan. And I'm the only one, Jesus says, to give you hope in a broken world full of trouble. Just the everyday trouble that we face in this world. And we face a lot of it. Face a lot of it. It's, it can be the little things like losing your wallet and having to cancel your credit cards and get a new license. Spilling a whole French press full of coffee all over the kitchen and the grounds are found in places you didn't know were there. Locking your keys in the church building and walking out. Oddly specific things because they all happened to me this week. <laughs> like those little things in life, they're annoyances and they're not earth shattering. And then also all the other broken things that we face like sickness and chronic pain and just the ongoing world of living, uh, living in a broken world. Jesus came to be the gateway to healing from that. I was praying that as I was driving back from the church after borrowing Dawson's key. Thank you, Jesus. There's coming a day when we don't need keys anymore. We won't lock, we won't forget. We won't set keys down and forget them. Jesus gives us hope for those little moments of brokenness. But then to return to our context, Jesus says, yes, I am the only one who can truly and fully and deeply heal you from your wounds. 
from your trauma. Jesus is the only one who can see how deep your wounds are. He's the only one who can truly know you. He's the only one who can fully be present and sit with you and weep with you and grieve with you and be angry with you at injustice. He's the only one who can say, I went to the cross so that by my wounds you could be healed. And, and listen, we, we as elders, we pray that we will not wound you as sheep. And we hope and pray that. But your ultimate hope is not that we hope and pray that. Your ultimate hope is there is someone called the gate, the way, the door, who will always keep his promises, who will never accidentally or intentionally wound you. He is your hope and he is our hope. And, and, and your ultimate hope is not in counseling or in therapy. Dawson talked about this a little bit next week. We, we believe in the gift of counseling and therapy here. You've heard us talk about it. I see a coach every other week to work on my emotional health. We refer people to counseling. Many here have, have been to counseling, have experienced great help and healing. And so we are, we are a pro-therapy, pro-counseling church insofar as that counseling and that therapy ultimately draws us back to Jesus who can truly and deeply Heal us. Last Diane Langberg quote in her book on, on trauma, on abuse of power. One of her last chapters is called Beauty in Garbage City. What a title. And she's talking about her life as a counselor, that it's like walking through garbage city as she deals with one case after the next. And the garbage is not the people that she's dealing with. They're precious souls. The garbage is the sin and evil committed against them. And as she talks about this journey through garbage city, she says, I fear that the very thing central to who we are in our identity and what we do in our lives and our work often takes a back seat. Outside of the cross, there is no hope for the garbage or the people who make it. We have a lot of skills. We could probably find somebody who has expertise in almost every therapeutic invention known to mankind, at least the mainstream ones. Skills don't make beauty out of garbage. There are a lot of theories out there and some brilliant minds. Theories and brilliant minds don't make beauty out of garbage. Now I am all for top-notch skills and brilliant theories. As a matter of fact, I believe as Christians, we should outshine the secular world in these matters for we are called to excellence by our God. However, we dare not forget that it is the cross of Jesus Christ that is the only hope of this world. Our constant danger is that we cry, behold this new method, behold this new theory, behold this new training, and forget to cry, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin, the garbage of the world. Jesus is the door. He's the gate to healing. And to give you a preview of next week, he doesn't just want to heal us, Look at verse 10, John 10, in closing. He says, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus' desire for you is not just to get you out of ICU. 
He wants you to live a life of abundance, of spiritual abundance, of going in and out and finding pasture. And that's what it looks like to live under the good shepherd who we'll talk about next week. That's the, that's the life that Jesus longs for every one of us. And so my, my invitation to us, I've, I've given us a little extra time at the end, is I'd love for us to respond in prayer. And we're gonna sing two songs. And, and while we're singing those two songs, and a band, if you wanna go ahead and come up, while you're singing those two songs, I, I wanna invite you to think about the wounds in your life. And I, I wanna broaden it out, not just to church wounds. Maybe you have those wounds from leaders. But maybe there's other trauma and wounds that you're, you're feeling this morning. Maybe it's your body that's in need of healing today. Jesus still heals bodies. Remember we talked about in the book of Acts, we want to have a good theology of suffering that often Jesus heals us slowly and there's a reason for that. But we want to have a good theology of miracles that often Jesus heals us instantly. And it's not our job to figure out when or how Jesus heals. It's our job to say, Jesus, you're the gate to healing and here I am. Please heal me the way you want to. And so I want to invite you while we're singing, I'm gonna, we're going to have some people in the corners back there who would love to pray with you, who believe that Jesus can heal you instantly or can choose to heal you in a longer way, who would love to pray with you. Or as you're singing, maybe you know there's someone in this room that you trust and you just want to walk to them and say, will you pray for me? Or you want to walk to them and say, hey, can I pray for you? I know it's hard with pews, but if you can push past it for a minute and be free to just walk around, we'll sing two songs, we'll have plenty of time. And I also wanna give you the freedom, if you wanna stay and you feel like, I, I can't really share what I'm experiencing right now, it's too hard in this room, that's okay too. Take this moment to say, Jesus, will you heal me? And will you show me who I need to go talk to that may be able to bring the healing of Jesus to my heart? So let me pray. And then the band will sing and then Dawson will invite us to communion after a couple of songs and give us a chance to pray. Lord, thank you. Jesus, thank you that you, you are the way, you are the gate to healing for the deepest wounds of our soul. We ask for that in this, in this place today, that we would take one step, one more step towards you, Jesus, as the one who can heal us and bring, bring wholeness. Bring shalom to this room, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.